Chapter six of True Detective Stories from the Archives of the Pinkertons. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piotr Natter. True Detective Stories from the Archives of the Pinkertons by Cleveland Moffat. The American Exchange Bank Robbery. Late in the afternoon of Friday, May 4, 1888, two messengers left the American Exchange National Bank at the northeast corner of Cedar Street and Broadway, New York City, and started down the busy thoroughfare for the office of the Adams Express Company, a few blocks distant. They carried between them, each holding one of the handles, a valise made of canvas and leather, in which had just been placed, in the presence of the paying teller, a package containing $41,000 in greenbacks, to be transmitted to the United States Treasury in Washington for redemption. Although the messengers, Edward S. Crawford and Old Dominie Earl, were among the bank's most trusted employees, their honesty being considered above suspicion, they were nevertheless followed at a short distance by bank detective McDougall, an old-time police detective, whose snow-white beard and ancient style of dress have long made him a personage of note on Broadway. Detective McDougall followed the messengers not because he had any fear that they were planning a robbery, but because it is an imperative rule of all great banking institutions that the transfer of large sums of money, even for very short distances, shall be watched over with the most scrupulous care. Each messenger is supposed to act as a check on his fellow, while the detective, walking in the rear, is a check on both. In such cases all three men are armed, and would use their weapons without hesitation should an attack be made upon them. The messengers walked on through the hurrying crowd, keeping on the east sidewalk as far as Wall Street, where they turned across and continued their way on the west sidewalk as far as the Adams Express Company's building, which stands at number 59 Broadway. Having seen them safely inside the building, the detective turned back to the bank, where his services were required in other matters. Passing down the large room strewn with boxes and packages ready for shipment, the two messengers turned to the right and ascended the winding stairs that in those days led to the money department on the second floor. No one paid much attention to them, as at this busy hour bank messengers were arriving and departing every few minutes. Still, some of the clerks remembered afterward, or thought they did, that the old man, Earl, ascended the stairs more slowly than his more active companion, who went ahead carrying the valise alone. Both messengers, however, were present at the receiving window of the money department when the package was taken from the valise and handed to the clerk, who gave a receipt for it in the usual form. Received from the American Exchange Bank one package marked as containing $41,000 for transfer to Washington or at least so far as has ever been proved both messengers were present when the package was handed in the two messengers having performed their duty went away earl hurrying to the ferry to catch a train out into new jersey where he lived and crawford returning to the bank with the empty valise the valuable package had meantime been ranged behind the heavily wired grating along with dozens of others some of them containing much larger sums the clerks in the money department of the Adams Express Company become so accustomed to handling gold, silver, and banknotes, fortunes done up in bags, boxes, or bundles, that they think little more of this precious merchandise than they might of so much coal or bricks, 
A quick glance, a touch of the hand, satisfies them that the seals, the wrappings, the labels, the general appearance of the packages are correct, and having entered them duly on the waybills and turned them over to the express messenger, who is to forward them to their destination, they think no more about them. In this instance, the $41,000 package, after a brief delay, was locked in one of the small portable safes, a score of which are always lying about in readiness, and was lowered to the basement, where it was loaded on one of the company's wagons. The wagon was then driven to Jersey City, guarded by the messenger in charge, his assistant, and the driver, all three men being armed, and was safely placed aboard the night express for Washington. It is the company's rule that the messenger who starts with a through safe travels with it to its destination, though he has to make a journey of a thousand miles. Sometimes the destination of money under transfer is so remote that the service of several express companies is required, and in that case the messenger of the Adams Company accompanies the money only to the point where it is delivered to the messenger of the next company, and so on. The next morning, when the package from the American Exchange Bank was delivered in Washington, the experienced treasury clerk who received it perceived at once, from the condition of the package, that something was wrong. Employees of the Treasury Department seem to gain a new sense, and to be able to distinguish banknotes from ordinary paper merely by the feel, even when done up in bundles. Looking at the label mark of $41,000, the clerk shook his head and called the United States Treasurer, James W. Hyatt, who also saw something suspicious in the package. Mr. Blanchard, the Washington agent of the Adams Express Company, was summoned and in his presence the package was opened. It was found to contain nothing more valuable than slips of brown straw paper, the coarse variety used by butchers in wrapping up meat, neatly cut to the size of banknotes. The $41,000 were missing. It was evident that at some point between the bank and the treasury a bogus package had been substituted for the genuine one. The question was, where and by whom had the substitution been made? The robbery was discovered at the Treasury in Washington at, on Saturday morning. The news was telegraphed to New York immediately, and on Saturday afternoon anxious councils were held by the officials of the American Exchange Bank and the Adams Express Company. Inspector Burns was notified, the Pinkerton Agency was notified, and urgent dispatches were sent to Mr. John Huey, President of the Express Company, and to Robert Pinkerton, who were both out of town, that their presence was required immediately in New York. Meanwhile, everyone who had had any connection with the stolen package, the paying teller of the bank, other bank clerks, the messengers, Detective McDougall, the receiving clerks of the Adams Express Company, and the express messenger, was closely examined. Where and how the $41,000 had been stolen was important to learn not only in itself, but also to fix responsibility for the sum lost as between the bank and the express company. Three theories were at once suggested. The bogus package might have been substituted for the genuine one either at the bank, between the bank and the express office, or between the express office and the treasury. The first assumption threw suspicion on some of the bank employees, the second upon the two bank messengers, the third upon someone in the service of the express company. Both the bank and the express company stoutly maintained the integrity of its own employees. An examination of the bogus package disclosed some points of significance. 
Ordinarily, when banknotes are done up for shipment by an experienced clerk, the bills are pressed together as tightly as possible in small bundles, which are secured with elastic bands, and then wrapped snugly in strong paper, until the whole makes a package almost as hard as a board. Around this package the clerk knots strong twine, melts a drop of sealing wax over each knot, and stamps it with the bank's seal. The finished package thus presents a neat and trim appearance, but in the present instance the package received at the treasury was loosely and slovenly wrapped, and the seals seemed to have been put on, either in great haste or by an inexperienced hand. Moreover, the label must have been cut from the stolen package and pasted on the other, for the brown paper of a previous wrapping showed plainly in a margin running around the label. The address on the package read, $41,000, United States Treasurer, Washington, D.C. All this was printed, except the figures 41,000, even the dollar sign. The figures were in the writing of Mr. Watson, the paying teller of the bank, whose business it was to oversee the sending of the money. His initials were also marked on the label with the date of the sending, so that on examining the label Mr. Watson himself was positive that it was genuine. All this made it tolerably clear that the robbery had not been committed at the bank before the package was entrusted to the two messengers, for no bank clerk would have made up so clumsy a package, and the paying teller himself, had he been a party to the crime, would not have cut the label written by himself from the genuine package and pasted it on the bogus one. He would simply have written out another label, thus lessening the chances of detection. Furthermore, it was shown by testimony that during the short time between the sealing up of the package in the paying teller's department and its delivery to Dominic Earle, who took it first, it was constantly under the observation of half a dozen bank employees, so that the work of cutting off the label and pasting it on the bogus package could scarcely have been accomplished then without detection. Earle and Crawford, the bank messengers, were submitted to repeat examinations, but their statements threw no light upon the mystery. Both stuck persistently to the same story, which was that neither had loosed his hold on the handle of the valise from the moment they left the bank until they had delivered the package through the window of the express company's money department. Accepting these statements as true, it was impossible that the package had been tampered with in this part of its journey, while the assumption that they were not true implied apparently a collusion between the two messengers, which was highly improbable, since Dominie Earle had been a servant of the bank for thirty-five years, and had never in that long term failed in his duty or done anything to arouse distrust. Before entering the bank's employ he had been a preacher, and his whole life seemed to have been one of simplicity and honest dealing. As for Crawford, who was indeed a new man, it was plain that if the dominie had told the truth, and had really kept his hold on the valise handle all the way to the express company's window, his companion, honest or dishonest, would have had no opportunity to cut off the label, paste it on the bogus package, and make the substitution. Finally came the theory that the money package had been stolen while in the care of the express company. In considering this possibility, it became necessary to know exactly what had happened to the package from the moment it was taken through the window of the money department up to the time of its delivery at the treasury. The package was first receipted for by the head of the money department, Mr. J. C. Young. Having handed the receipt to the bank messengers, 
he passed the package to his assistant mr littlefield who in turn passed it on to another clerk mr moody who waybilled it in due form for washington and then placed it in the iron safe which was to carry it on its journey two or three hours may have elapsed between the receipt of the package and the shipment of the safe but during this time the package was constantly in view of five or six clerks in the money department and unless they were all in collusion it could scarcely have been stolen by any one there as for the express messenger who accompanied the safe on the wagon to the train and then on the train to the washington and then on another wagon to the treasury building his innocence seemed clearly established since the safe had been locked and sealed according to custom before its delivery to him and showed no signs of having been tampered with when opened in washington the following morning by another representative of the express company the messenger who accompanies a through safe to its destination indeed has small chance of getting inside not only because of the protecting seal but also because he is never allowed to have the key to the safe or to know its combination recently as a still further safeguard the adams express company has introduced into its cars an equipment of large burglar-proof and fireproof safes especially as a guard against train robbers who found it comparatively easy to break open the small safes once in use in the present instance of course there was no question of train robbers one important fact stood out plain and uncontrovertible that a responsible clerk in the money department of the adams express company had receipted for a package supposed to contain forty one thousand dollars entrusted to the company of the bank this threw the responsibility on the company at least until it could be shown that the package as delivered contained brown paper and not banknotes in accordance with their usual policy of promptness and liberality the adams people paid over to the american exchange bank the sum of forty one thousand dollars and said no more about it but their silence did not mean inactivity their instructions to their detectives in this case as in all similar cases were to spare neither time nor expense but to continue the investigation until the thieves had been detected and brought to punishment or until the last possibility of clearing up the mystery had certainly expired hastening to new york in response to the telegram sent him mr pinkerton examined the evidence already collected by his representative and then himself questioned all persons in any way concerned in the handling of the money mr pinkerton after his investigation was not so sure as some persons were that the package had been stolen by employees of the express company he inclined rather to the opinion that in the rush of business in the express office the false package badly made up though it was might have been passed by one of the clerks this conclusion turned his suspicions first toward the two bank messengers of these he was not long in deciding dominie earl to be in all probability innocent while he had known of instances where old men after years of unimpeachable life had suddenly turned to crime he knew such cases to be infrequent and he decided that earl's was not one of them of the innocence of the other messenger crawford he was not so sure he began a careful study of his record edward sturgis crawford at this time was about twenty-seven years old a man of medium height a decided blond with large blue eyes and of rather effeminate type he went scrupulously dressed he had white hands with carefully manicured nails parted his hair in the middle and altogether was something of a dandy 
he had entered the bank on the recommendation of a wealthy new yorker a young man about town who strange to say had made crawford's acquaintance and indeed struck up quite a friendship with him while the latter was serving in the humble capacity of conductor on a broadway car this was about a year before the time of the robbery thus far crawford had attended to his work satisfactorily doing nothing to arouse suspicion unless it was indulging a tendency to extravagance in dress his salary was but forty-two dollars a month and yet he permitted himself such luxuries as silk undercloths, fine patent leather shoes, and other apparel to correspond. Pushing back further into Crawford's record, Mr. Pinkerton learned that he had grown up in the town of Hancock, New York, where he had been accused of stealing sixty dollars from his employer and afterward of perpetrating a fraud upon an insurance company. Putting all these facts together, Mr. Pinkerton decided that, in spite of a perfectly self-possessed manner and the good opinion of his employers crawford would stand further watching his general conduct subsequent to the robbery was however such as to convince everyone except the dogged detective that he was innocent of this crime in vain did shadows follow him night and day week after week they discovered nothing he retained his place in the bank doing the humble duties of messenger with the same regularity as before and living apparently in perfect content with the small salary he was drawing his expenses were lightened it is true by an arrangement voluntarily offered by his friend the young man about town who invited him to live in his own home on thirty-eighth street whereby not only was he saved the ordinary outlay for lodgings but many comforts and luxuries were afforded him that would otherwise have been beyond his reach. Thus three months went by with no result, then four, five, six months, and finally all but a year. Then, suddenly, in April 1899, Crawford took his departure for Central America, giving out to his friends that he was going there to assume the management of a banana plantation of 60,000 acres, owned by his wealthy friend and benefactor before crawford sailed however the shadows have informed mr pinkerton of crawford's intention and asked instructions should they arrest the man before he took flight or should they let him go mr pinkerton realized that he was dealing with a man who if guilty was a criminal of unusual cleverness and cunning his arrest would probably accomplish nothing and might spoil everything there was little likelihood that the stolen money would be found on crawford's person he would probably arrange some safer way for its transmission. Perhaps it had gone ahead of him to Central America weeks before. We'll let him go, said Mr. Pinkerton with a grim smile. Only we'll have someone go with him. The Pinkerton representative employed to shadow Crawford on the voyage sent word, by the first mail after their arrival in Central America, that the young man had rarely left his stateroom, and that whenever forced to do so, had employed a colored servant to stand on guard so that no one could go inside nothing more occurred however to justify the suspicion against crawford until the early part of eighteen ninety when the persistent efforts of the detectives were rewarded by an important discovery it was then that robert pinkerton learned that crawford had told a deliberate lie when examined before the bank officials in regard to his family relations in new york he had stated that his only relative in new york was a brother marvin crawford who was then driving a street car on the bleecker street line 
Now it came to the knowledge of Mr. Pinkerton that Crawford had in the city three married aunts and several cousins. The reason for Crawford's having concealed this fact was presently brought to light through the testimony of one of the aunts, who, having been induced to speak not without difficulty, stated that on Sunday, May 6, 1888, two days after the robbery, her nephew had called at her house, and given her a package which he said contained gloves, and which he wished her to keep for him. It was about this time that the papers contained the first news of the robbery, and her suspicions having been aroused, she picked a hole in the paper covering of the package large enough to let her see that there was money inside. Somewhat disturbed, she took the package to her husband, who opened it and found that it contained two thousand dollars in banknotes. Realizing the importance of this discovery, the husband told his wife that when Crawford came back to claim the package, she should refer him to him, which she did. Some days later, on learning from his aunt that she had spoken to her husband about the package, Crawford became greatly excited and told her she had made a dreadful mistake. A stormy scene followed with his uncle, in which the latter positively refused to render him the money until he was satisfied that Crawford was its rightful possessor. A few days later, Crawford's young friend, the man about town, called on the uncle and stated that the money in the package belonged to him and must be surrendered. The uncle was still obdurate, and when Crawford and his friend became violent in manner, he remarked meaningly that if they made any more trouble he would deliver the package of money to the Adams Express Company and let the company decide to whom it belonged. This brought the angry climates to their senses, and Crawford's friend left the house and never returned. Finally, Crawford's uncle compromised the contention by giving his nephew five hundred dollars out of the two thousand and retaining the balance himself, in payment, one must suppose, for his silence. At any rate, he kept $1,500 and also a receipt in Crawford's handwriting for the $500 paid to him. Other members of the family recalled the fact that a few days after the robbery, Crawford had left in his aunt's storeroom a valise, which he had subsequently called for and taken away. None of them had seen the contents of the valise, but they remembered that Crawford, on the second visit, had remained alone in the storeroom for quite a time, perhaps twenty minutes, and after his departure they found there a rubber band like those used at the bank. The detectives also discovered that on the 15th of May, 1888, eleven days after the robbery, Crawford had rented a safety deposit box at the bank in the Fifth Avenue Hotel building, under the name of Eugene Holt. On the 18th of May he had exchanged this box for a larger one. During the following months he made several visits to the box, but for what purpose was not known. On presenting this accumulated evidence to the Adams Express Company, along with his own deductions, Robert Pinkerton was not long in convincing his employers that the situation required in Central America the presence of some more adroit detective than had yet been sent there. The difficulty of the case was heightened by the fact that Crawford had established himself in British Honduras and that the extradition treaty between the United States and England did not then, as it does now, provide for the surrender of criminals guilty of such offences as that which Crawford was believed to have committed. Crawford could be arrested, therefore, only by being gotten into another country by some clever manoeuvre. The man best capable of carrying out such a manoeuvre was Robert Pinkerton himself. 
and accordingly the express company despite the very considerable expense involved and fully aware that the result must be uncertain authorized mr pinkerton to go personally in pursuit of mr crawford mr pinkerton arrived at belize the capital of british honduras on february seventeenth eighteen ninety nearly two years after the date of the robbery there he learned that crawford's plantation was about ninety miles down the coast a little back of punta gorda punta gorda lies near the line separating british honduras from guatemala and is not more than a hundred miles from spanish honduras or honduras proper directly across the gulf of honduras difficulties confronted mr pinkerton from the very start people were dying about him every day of yellow fever and when he started for punta gorda on a little steamer the engineer came aboard looking as yellow as saffron and immediately began to vomit so that he had to be taken ashore then the engine broke down several times on the voyage and the heat was insufferable as the boat steamed slowly into punta gorda it passed a small steam craft loaded with bananas look said one of the passengers to mr pinkerton not aware of the nature of mr pinkerton's mission there goes crawford's launch now landing at once the detective waited for the launch to come to shore which it presently did the first man to come off was marvin crawford whom mr pinkerton recognized from a description although he had never seen him then he saw edward crawford step off dressed smartly in a white helmet hat a red sash a fine plated linen shirt blue trousers patent leather shoes and so on mr pinkerton approached and held out his hand i don't remember you said crawford but his face went white you used to know me in new york when i examined you before the bank officials said the detective pleasantly crawford smiled in a sickly way and said oh yes i remember you now mr pinkerton explained that he had travelled five thousand miles to talk with him about the stolen money package crawford expressed willingness to furnish any information he could and invited mr pinkerton to go up to his plantation where they could talk the matter over more comfortably seeing that his best course was to humour crawford mr pinkerton consented though realising that he thus put himself in crawford's power they went aboard crawford's launch and steamed up the river a very narrow winding stream arched quite over through most of its length by the thick tropical foliage and in some parts so deep that no soundings had yet found bottom the plantation was entirely inaccessible by land on account of impassable swamps and the crooked course of the river made it a journey of twenty-three miles from punta gorda although in a straight line it was only six miles away mr pinkerton was surprised at the unpretentious character of the house which was built of cane and palm stalks and roofed with palm branches originally it had been one large room but it was now divided by muslin sheets into two rooms one at either end with a hall in the middle almost the first thing mr pinkerton noticed on entering was a fireproof safe standing in the hall it was of medium size and seemed to be new he knew he was powerless under the laws of the country to search the safe but he made up his mind that while he was in the house he would keep his eye as much as possible upon it that night he did not sleep for watching but crawford did not go near the safe until the next morning when he went to get out some account books while the door was open mr pinkerton saw only a small bag of silver inside 
but he felt sure from Crawford's manner that there was a larger amount of money there. Mr. Pinkerton remained at the plantation for forty-eight hours. On the second day he had a long interview with Crawford, questioning him in the greatest detail as to his connection with the robbery. Crawford persisted in denying that he had had any connection with it, or had any knowledge as to what had become of the stolen money. Argue as he would, Mr. Pinkerton could not beat down the stubbornness of his denials. All direct approaches failing, at last he tried indirection. He spoke of Bjork, the absconding state treasurer of Louisiana, who, along with a number of other American lawbreakers, had fled to Central America. Bjork had a level head, hadn't he? said he. How do you mean? asked Crawford. Why, in going to Spanish Honduras? You know the United States has no extradition treaty there under which we could bring back a man who has absconded for embezzlement or grand larceny. Bjork is as safe there as if he owned the whole country. Is that so? said Crawford, looking significantly at his brother Marvin, who was present. Yes, said Mr. Pinkerton, it is. I only wish the fellow would come up here into British Honduras, then we might do something with him. Here the subject was dropped. Next, Mr. Pinkerton exhibited to Crawford a sealed letter written by James G. Blaine and addressed to the chief magistrate of British Honduras, pointing to the seals of the State Department to assure Crawford of the letter's genuineness and hinting mysteriously at the use he proposed making of this document and at the probable effect that would follow its delivery. With this the interview closed, and Mr. Pinkerton announced his intention of going back to Punta Gorda. Crawford had practically told him to do his worst, and he had not concealed his intention of doing it. Nevertheless, their relations continued outwardly pleasant, and Mr. Pinkerton was treated with the hospitality that is usual in tropical countries. He saw no sign of any disposition on the part of either of the Crawfords to do him harm, but he kept his revolvers always ready, and gave them no chance to catch him napping. Toward evening of the second day, Crawford and his brother got the launch ready and took Mr. Pinkerton down the river back to Punta Gorda, where they said goodbye. At parting, Crawford made a brave show of treating the whole matter lightly. I may see you in New York in a couple of months, he said to the detective as they shook hands. If you see me in New York, said Mr. Pinkerton, you will see yourself under arrest. On landing, Mr. Pinkerton proceeded, with all the obviousness possible, to call at the house of the British magistrate, which was so situated that Crawford, from the launch, could not fail to see him enter. This seemed to have confirmed the impression he had been striving to create that British Honduras, though in truth a perfect refuge for a criminal like Crawford, was none. Crawford, apparently thoroughly frightened, and thinking he had not an hour to lose, steamed back in all haste to his plantation, gathered together, as subsequently appeared, his money and other valuables, and then, under cover of night, dropped down the river again, put out to sea forthwith, and crossed the Bay of Honduras to Puerto Cortes in Spanish Honduras, the country of all Central America in which Mr. Pinkerton preferred to have him. In short, Mr. Pinkerton's stratagem had worked perfectly. Mr. Pinkerton's reason for wishing to get Crawford into Spanish Honduras was not because the treaty arrangements were more favorable there than in British Honduras, but because the Pinkerton agency enjoyed unusual personal relations with the Honduras government. 
several years before when president bogram had in contemplation the federation of central american states under one government he had applied to the pinkerton agency for reliable detectives for secret service work in consequence of this the present head of the honduras secret service was no other than a former pinkerton employee who had been recommended by the new york office to the honduras government and upon whom mr pinkerton knew he could rely absolutely another man equally disposed to favour him was mr bert cecil a member of the cabinet and at the head of the telegraph service and thus in a position to render most valuable service in the apprehension of crawford as soon as mr pinkerton learned of crawford's flight he hurried in pursuit crossing the bay to livingston in guatemala in so doing he risked his life first by putting out to sea in a little dory and then by trusting his safety to a treacherous carib boatman who when they were several miles out evinced a strong disposition to take possession of the detective's overcoat in order as he explained with a cunning look to turn its silk lining into a pair of trousers at this mr pinkerton carelessly produced his revolver which had a quieting effect upon the fellow and the voyage was completed in safety but soon after landing mr pinkerton suffered an attack of fever and being warned by the doctors to return to a northern latitude he got the government machinery in motion for the apprehension of crawford had photographs of the former bank messenger spread broadcast throughout the country and then having cabled the new york bureau to send responsible detectives to take his place he sailed for new orleans mr pinkerton was succeeded in central america by detective george h hotchkiss one of the best men in the country who arrived in belize on the eighteenth of march a telegram from pinkerton's former employee now chief of the secret police in honduras informed him that crawford had been seen in san pedro spanish honduras on the previous saturday and was being closely pursued by spanish soldiers accompanied by pinkerton men hotchkiss sailed at once for puerto cortes where he learned from the american vice-consul dr ruez that crawford had left san pedro hastily the previous monday night on further investigation the detective discovered that a san francisco bully and former prize-fighter mike nayland had called at crawford's boarding-house on monday and warned him that detectives were pursuing him from puerto cortes on a hand-car nayland had pretended to be crawford's friend and said he would keep him out of the hands of the detectives crawford very much frightened grabbed up some of his luggage and left the house with nayland it was generally believed that nayland had designs on crawford's money and would not hesitate to kill him if need were in order to get it hotchkiss immediately requested mr bert cecil at tegucigalpa the capital to cover all telegraphic points and if possible have crawford and his companion arrested on some trivial charge the day after he reached san pedro on march twenty second he received a telegram saying that crawford and nayland had been arrested and taken before the governor at santa barbara they had been searched and about thirty two thousand dollars had been found on crawford's person the money was in old and worn bills that in every way resembled those in the stolen package whether they were the identical bills or not it was impossible to say as the bank had not recorded the numbers on receipt of this news hotchkiss accompanied by jack hall a guide set out across the country for santa barbara the journey was accomplished but only after the most terrible suffering and many privations and dangers 
Moreover, the fever got its deadly clutches upon Detective Hotchkiss, and when he had finally dragged himself into Santa Barbara, he cabled the New York office, Crawford and Money held for extradition, am sick, cannot remain, coming on steamer Tuesday, my associate takes charge. Before sailing for New Orleans, Detective Hotchkiss had an interview with Crawford in the presence of the Spanish officials, and obtained from him a written confession of his guilt. While admitting that he had been a party to the robbery, the absconder tried to lessen his own crime by declaring that the plan to plunder the bank had been suggested to him by two men, named Brown and Bowen, whom he had met accidentally on a railway train in New York, and with whom he had afterward become very friendly. These men had taken him to Brown's house on 38th Street, somewhere between 8th and 9th Avenues. Crawford could not locate the place more precisely, and introduced him to a fine-looking woman presented as Mrs. Brown, who was also in the conspiracy. They told him that he was earning very little money for a man in such a responsible position, and that he might easily make a fortune if he would put his interests in their hands and be guided by their advice. The outcome of several conversations was a plan to get possession of a valuable money package on some day when Crawford should know a large sum was to be sent away from the bank. He claimed that on the day of the robbery, one of his fellow conspirators, Bowen, followed behind himself and Earl after they entered the Adams Express offices and managed to substitute a bogus package for the real one, while the two messengers were going up the stairs. He did not make this attempt until he saw the bank detective MacDougall turn back up Broadway. Crawford said that he managed it so as to precede Earl in going up the stairs, which gave Bowen, who was standing at the first turn, in the shadow, an opportunity to open the satchel and quickly make the substitution. Crawford declared that the conspirators gave him only $2,500 as his share of the booty, although promising him more. This sum he put in two envelopes and said to his aunt, the one to whom he afterward entrusted the package supposed to contain gloves. Crawford stated further that Brown and Bowen, having been forced to flee the country, sent him word from Paris some time later, in a letter written by Mrs. Bowen, that the greater part of the stolen money had been buried in a flower-bed in the southeast corner of a yard on West 38th Street, and asked him to dig it up and send it to them. A remarkable fact in this connection is that the yard referred to on West 38th Street belonged to the house of the friend and benefactor with whom Crawford was living at the time of the robbery. Crawford claimed to have carried out these instructions and deposited the package of money taken from the flower beds in the safe deposit vaults in the Fifth Avenue Hotel building, where, as a matter of fact, he was known to have rented a box. He gave as his reason for not sending the money to Paris that he was in trouble himself, being under constant surveillance, and thought it best to keep the money secreted for the time. He admitted that he had carried this money with him to Honduras, and that it was the same found on his person by the detectives. By his description of Brown and Bowen, the former was a man about twenty-five years old, of slight build and light complexion, while the latter was ten years older, two or three inches taller, with a sandy moustache and very fat hands. Mrs. Brown, Crawford, described as about twenty-five years old, a blonde with regular features. He had no idea what had become of these people since he left America, having had no further communication with them. 
none of the alleged conspirators has ever been found and they are believed to be purely mythical detective hotchkiss also had an interview with mike nayland crawford's companion in flight who described his first meeting with crawford at his boarding-house in san pedro and acknowledged that he had deliberately frightened crawford into running away by his story of the pursuing detectives he described their adventures and hardships in trying to escape over the rough terrain the difficulties they experienced in buying mules their sufferings from exposure in the swamps and finally their capture by the soldiers nayland said that crawford gave him three thousand dollars in fifty-dollar bills and also allowed him to carry a part of the time a large package wrapped in oilcloth paper and sewed up tightly crawford had told him to throw this package away rather than let anyone capture it for he said it contained money which would send him to prison if found upon him as they pushed along in their flight crawford declared repeatedly that he would put an end to his life rather than be taken prisoner and when the soldiers surrounded them he drew his revolver and tried to blow his brains out one of the soldiers however was too quick for him and struck the weapon out of his hand after the capture crawford vainly tried to bribe the guards to let him escape offering them as much as ten thousand dollars when the large package was opened it was found to contain bundles of bills sewed together with black thread and with about a dozen rubber bands wrapped around them and a stout covering of buckskin under the oiled paper the money amounted to thirty two thousand five hundred dollars all in united states bills fives tens twenties fifties and hundreds but mostly fives ultimately the money was returned to the american exchange bank when organizing the pursuit of crawford detective hotchkiss had arranged with the honduras government that any letters and telegrams that might come addressed to the absconder should be delivered to him several letters were thus secured from the young man about town in new york who had befriended crawford so constantly in the past and who seemed now disposed to stand by him even in adversity and disgrace the letters contained counsel and reproaches and seemed to indicate that relations of unusual familiarity had existed between the two men besides these letters two cablegrams were intercepted from the same source both being sent through an intermediary the first was dated march fifteenth eighteen ninety and read tell crawford go back papers bluff no treaty exists the second sent two days later read inform crawford will meet him in puerto cortez it is needless to say that the young man did not carry out his intention of joining crawford in honduras for the same mail which would have brought him crawford's reply carried the startling news that his protege and friend was under arrest in santa barbara a self-confessed bank robber the government of honduras consented thanks to their friendly relations with the pinkertons to deliver crawford over to one of the representatives of the agency and superintendent e s gaylor who had meantime replaced detective hotchkiss took him in charge a guard of spanish soldiers brought the prisoner to puerto cortez where he was placed in a hotel pending his transfer to a vessel sailing for the united states superintendent gaylor himself was present to see that everything was managed properly and he was seconded in his oversight by the former pinkerton employee the head of the secret police in honduras the final arrangements had been made the government having taken advantage of a law authorizing the expulsion of pernicious foreigners in order to get rid of crawford the superintendent had actually taken passage for himself and crawford 
and selected berths on an American vessel that was to sail on the morning of May 2, 1890. But the night before, Crawford made his escape from the hotel, going without the money, which remained in the detective's keeping. How he escaped is still a matter of conjecture. The hotel stood on the water's edge, and from a balcony to which Crawford had access, he may have managed to spring down to a wall built on piles. From there he may have reached the hotel yard at the back, and escaped over one of the picket fences that separated the hotel from the adjoining property. There is also a possibility that the Spanish soldiers were bribed, but this has never been proved, and is scarcely probable, as Crawford at the time of his escape had not more than seventy-five dollars in Honduras bills in his possession. During the following days and weeks, untiring efforts were made to recapture him. The swamps were searched for miles, and soldiers were sent out in all directions. Mr. Gaylor believed that Crawford succeeded in making his escape into Guatemala, which was only thirty miles distant. He was undoubtedly assisted in his escape by the fact that people in the surrounding regions sympathized strongly with him and would have done anything in their power to conceal him from his pursuers. At any rate, the man was never recovered. Seven years have passed since Crawford's escape, and all this time he has been left undisturbed in Central America, where he has been frequently seen by people who know him and where he seems to be thriving. At last accounts, he and his brother were engaged in business on one of the islands in the Mosquito Reservation of Nicaragua, where they were regarded as dangerous men by the government, likely to incite revolution. So strong was this feeling on the part of the Nicaraguan officials that some years ago advances were made to the United States government to have Crawford surrendered, the Nicaraguan officials declaring that they would gladly give him up if a demand for his extradition was made by the proper authorities in Washington. For some reason the demand has never been made, and probably never will be. Immediately after Crawford had made confession, the American Exchange Bank, realizing that there was no longer any doubt that the robbery was committed by one of its employees, voluntarily refunded to the Adams Express Company the $41,000 that had previously been paid to it by the company, together with interest thereon for two years and a large part of the expenses. Therefore, the only complainant in the case now available would be the bank officials, who, for some reason, have seen fit to let the matter drop. Mr. Pinkerton's theory of the way in which this robbery was committed is that Crawford had an accomplice who had previously prepared the bogus package and who, by previous appointment, was standing on the stairs in the express office when the two messengers arrived. It has always been a question in Mr. Pinkerton's mind whether the old man Dominey Earl told the exact truth in his testimony before the bank officials. Not that he suspected Earl of having been implicated in the crime, but he has wondered whether Earl might not have been simply negligent to the extent of leaving Crawford in sole possession of the valise at some time after they entered the office. There is no doubt that Earl was very anxious to catch a four o'clock train at one of the New Jersey's ferries in order to get home early. He may, in his haste, have allowed Crawford to go upstairs with the valise unaccompanied. This would explain how Crawford found opportunity to open the valise and make substitution of the bogus for the genuine package. Assuming that the accomplice was standing at a turn of the stairs, which are winding and rather dusky, it is perfectly conceivable that such a change of packages might have been effected with scarcely a moment's delay. 
but consenting that Earl told the exact truth, he admitted that he lingered behind Crawford a little in ascending the stairs, and in so doing he may have furnished sufficient opportunity for the substitution. An old man going up rather steep stairs naturally bends his head forward to relieve the ascent, and in such position he might fail to see what a man close in front of him even was doing. The trouble with this theory is that it supposes the label on the bogus package to have been a forgery. There is still another theory suggested by Mr. Pinkerton to account for the presence of the bogus money package in the valise when the two messengers reached the counter of the receiving department. It is that Crawford's confederate had provided himself with a second valise, similar in all respects to the one used by the bank, and that in this had been placed the bogus package with a forged label, making the substitution a matter of merely changing valises, which could have been accomplished in a second. It has also been suggested that Crawford might have managed the whole scheme himself, by having prepared a valise like the one he carried daily, arranged with two compartments, in one of which was placed the genuine package received from the paying teller at the bank, while out of the other compartment was taken, at the express office, a bogus package previously placed there. What makes it the more reasonable to suppose that Crawford accomplished the theft single-handed is the fact that when arrested in Honduras the bulk of the stolen money was found on his person, while it was known that, in addition to the $32,000 then recovered, he had previously spent considerable sums in various ways. His voyage, for instance, must have been expensive, and it was found that he had given at various times to members of his family sums ranging from twenty to fifty dollars this would have left out of the original forty one thousand dollars a very meagre remuneration for a confederate perhaps the most reasonable explanation of the robbery lies in the assumption that dominie earl honest but simple-minded did not go upstairs at all with crawford but left him at the foot of the stairs influenced by his eagerness to get home granting this supposition what would have been easier than for crawford left alone at the foot of the stairs to have turned back with the valise and gone into the back room of some neighbouring saloon or other convenient place where he could manipulate the label and substitute the bogus package there is no reason to think that the bogus package had been prepared weeks before which would have accounted in a measure for its worn and slovenly appearance the time occupied in doing all this need not have been over fifteen minutes, which would not have been noticed at the bank, especially as the robbery occurred after banking hours. It is highly improbable, however, that Crawford could have accomplished the substitution on the stairs of the express office, for while these are winding and somewhat in the shadow, they are by no means dark, and are plainly in view of clerks and officials who are constantly passing. Besides that, Crawford could not have carried the dummy package concealed about his person without attracting attention, for the original package was quite bulky, being about twenty inches long, twenty inches wide, and fourteen inches thick. The bogus package was not quite so thick and more oblong, but could not easily have been hidden under a man's coat. Finally, even supposing Crawford did carry the bogus package with him in some manner, he would never have dared to expose himself to almost certain detection by cutting off the label from the genuine package, pasting it on the bogus package, placing the latter in the valise, and hiding the genuine one in his clothes, and doing all this on the busy stairs of an express office, 
where at that hour of the day a dozen men are going up and down every minute the sum of all these theories is however that in spite of the fact that the author of the robbery is known and the bulk of the money has been recovered the manner of the robbery is to this day a mystery end of the american exchange bank robbery end of true detective stories from the archives of the pinkertons